This is the Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. The Political Insider is your inside source on politics from the White House to the State House and all points in between. If it's in the headlines, the Political Insider will have the story. Let's get started. Here's Bill Ballinger. Happy post-4th of July weekend, political junkies. Even though it was a holiday week, with the fabulous 4th on a Thursday, most of Michigan government and politics shut down by Wednesday afternoon and will not get back in gear until this coming Monday. Except for U.S. Representative Justin Amash, that is. The West Michigan congressman shocked a lot of people by announcing on the 4th of July that he was abandoning the Republican Party, which he said had become a victim of toxic partisanship. A lot of people would agree with that assessment. What what does Amash's action mean for himself and for the American political system? Amash hinted at least for the time being, that he plans to seek re-election in the 3rd Congressional District as an independent. But will he? There is a long way to go, more than nine months until the filing deadline next April, and much is likely to happen between now and then. What will happen is up for grabs, and I'm going to stop speculating right now because the situation is likely to change frequently and dramatically between now and in the August 2020 primary election. We'll have plenty of time to comment on what's unfolding between now and then. Other things were going on this week, even with the 100th Michigan legislature in recess. Did you realize this is the 100th session of the legislature in the entire history of Michigan that we're experiencing right now, and it will last through the end of next year? The Benton Harbor School District agreement that Governor Gretchen Whitmer thought she had brokered has apparently fallen apart. Benton Harbor has rejected the governor's plan to have the district meet certain benchmarks for the next year in order to keep its high school open. So now what? Well, the closure of the high school may be imminent unless there is a late-breaking miracle. Let's see what we hear next week. Meanwhile, the battle of the fiscal year 2019-2020 budget appears to be no closer to being resolved than it's been for the past six months. Governor Gretchen Whitmer remains steadfast in her demands that she will sign no budget that does not include what she considers adequate, stable long-term funding for fix the damn roads, which she defines at least $2.5 billion for the next 10 years. Majority Republicans in the legislature realize that 45 cents more per gallon for petrol is a non-starter with Michigan citizens. That's what the governor is demanding. So, Lawmakers, particularly on the Republican side, are scrambling to try to find more cash that will meet the governor's demands at least halfway. Will they be able to satisfy her? Right now, it doesn't seem likely. And the October 1st deadline as the start of the next fiscal year looms ever 
closer. Stay tuned. So now let's turn to a completely different subject. Legislative walkouts. Could it happen in Michigan? We'll try to answer that in a few minutes. But if so, a legislative walkout, who would walk out? Why? For how long? Would it even make any difference? Has it happened elsewhere? If so, what has become of what happened? What has been the result? Well, state legislatures require a specific number of members to be present in order to conduct official business, such as debating or voting on legislation. The minimum number of members required to conduct official business is known as a quorum. A quorum may vary among the various states, depending on the type of legislation, such as taxes or state budgets. Many legislative bodies in the various states, and we've got 50, as you know, have rules that allow present members to compel absent members to return for business. Now, while a lack of quorum can occur due to unexpected events, such as illness or inclement weather, let's say, it can also be used as a political tactic. Several times in recent decades, members of a minority party left the state capitol or the state entirely to prevent the passage of legislation that they did not like. This is called a state legislative walkout. Now, these walkouts can result in legislation dying on the floor of the majority party, compromising on the legislation, among other outcomes. I've seen legislative walkouts before, so I thought this would be a good time to set the landscape on the subject. Remember I said that the definition of a quorum differs among the states. Usually, quorum requirements for legislatures to conduct official business are laid out in state constitutions. Like in Michigan, it is Article 4 of our state constitution. In many states, there are also statutory requirements for a quorum if a bill involves, let's say, taxes or state finances. Now, here's the important thing to consider. Forty-five states, including Michigan, require a majority of legislators elected and serving to be present for a quorum. That's not present and voting. That is elected and serving. So we've got 110 in the House. We've got 38 state senators. That means in the House, a quorum for purposes of business would be 56 members. In the Senate, it would be 20 members. But I said 45 states have that kind of requirement. Four states, including Oregon and also Tennessee, Texas, Indiana, have a two-thirds majority requirement for a quorum. They have to be two-thirds of the members present for business to be conducted. Now, Massachusetts 
is the one state with a slightly quirky, different kind of a standard. They require two-fifths of state senators or three-eighths of state representatives to be present for a quorum. And if we look at the roll call of all the states, as I said, Michigan is one of the 45 that requires a majority elected and serving to be present for a quorum. The real issue is, uh, has that ever happened in Michigan recently that we even were in a position where a walkout might have occurred? And I would say the only time it could have happened would have been back in 1993-94 when we had a so-called shared power legislature, 55 members each, Democrats and Republicans in the State House of Representatives. And at that time, um, if one side was in control of the agenda, and basically what they did during those two years was split power back and forth, the other side uh, theoretically could have decided we're not going to show up, we're going to walk out, and they will not have a quorum because they will have only 55 members. That is not 56. So we're going to get into this a little bit more. I'm going to be back in a minute because I'm going to look at what has happened in some other states this year and in the past several years on legislative walkouts and whether it could happen in Michigan. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We are back with a discussion of legislative walkouts in the states that have had that phenomenon occur in the past several years. This year, on June 20th, the 11 Republican members of the Oregon State Senate did not come to a scheduled legislative session amid disagreements on a cap-and-trade climate bill. Democrats held 18 seats, but that was too short of the 20 members needed for a quorum. Remember I said just a few minutes ago, Oregon is one of five states that has not just a simple majority requirement for a quorum. You have to have two-thirds of your members present to constitute a quorum. Well, Oregon uh, had a standard too high to be met, and the Republican minority knew it, so they just boycotted the session. And in a statement following the walkout, Republicans said they believed the cap-and-trade bill should be referred to the ballot rather than decided by the legislature. Now, Governor Kate Brown, who is a Democrat, directed state police to find the Republican senators and bring them back to the Capitol. In response, the Republican senators traveled to Idaho and Montana, out of the state police's jurisdiction. The governor said she would not negotiate with Republicans until they returned to the Capitol to conduct legislative business. On June 25th, this was five days after the Republicans walked out, Senate President Peter Courtney, a Democrat, announced that Democrats did not have the votes in order to pass the cap-and-trade legislation. 
So the legislation was killed. The Republican senators returned to the Capitol on June 29th, ending the state legislative walkout after nine days. Now, Oregon's Republican legislators are the most recent example of a state legislative walkout where minority members left the Capitol or the state to prevent legislative action. But here are three examples of state legislative walkouts that occurred prior to 2019. Back in February of 2011, 37 Democratic members of the Indiana House of Representatives did not come to a scheduled legislative session to prevent the passage of right-to-work legislation. Remember that, folks? We had that here in Michigan in a lame-duck session in 2012. Well, a year earlier, a similar controversy arose next door to us in Indiana. The Democratic leaders said they would not return until the governor and the speaker, who were both Republicans, promised that the legislation would not be brought to the floor during the remainder of the legislative session. Republicans held 60 seats, seven short of the 67 members needed for a quorum. Governor Mitch Daniels, again, he was a Republican, did not request that state police find and return the absent lawmakers, saying that acting on such contentious legislation could potentially impact the rest of the legislative agenda. So the Democratic caucus remained in Urbana, Illinois, for the duration of the walkout. The walkout ended after six weeks with House Speaker Brian Bosma, a Republican, and House Minority Leader Patrick Bauer, a Democrat, agreeing to remove three of 12 disputed bills from the legislative calendar. And with those three removed, they passed the rest of the legislation. Now, let's go to Wisconsin. In February of the same year, 2011, 14 Democratic members of the Wisconsin State Senate did not come to a scheduled legislative session to prevent a vote on right-to-work legislation. There it is again, folks, right-to-work. The walkout came amidst protests by 25,000 people at the state capitol over the legislation. Republicans held 19 seats, three short of the 22 members needed for a quorum on legislation with fiscal implications. Wisconsin Senate Republicans ordered the arrest of the absent lawmakers, issuing warrants and giving state police the authority to obtain and return the senators. The Democratic caucus remained in Illinois for the duration of the walkout out of the state police's jurisdiction. The walkout ended after five weeks when Republicans removed fiscal provisions from the right-to-work legislation to lower the quorum needed for a vote and pass the legislation. The Democrats returned three days after the legislation passed. Now let's go to Texas. And this is way back in 2003. This is 16 years ago. In May of that year, 11 Democratic members of the Texas State Senate and 51 Democratic members of the Texas House of Representatives did not come to a scheduled legislative session to prevent the passage of a redistricting plan they claimed would have benefited Republicans. In the Senate, Republicans held 20 seats, one short of the 21 members needed for a quorum. 
Republicans held 98 seats in the House, too short of the 100 needed for a quorum. So Governor Rick Perry, a Republican, directed the Texas Rangers, and this is not the baseball team, folks, the real Texas Rangers, to find the missing lawmakers and return them to the Capitol. The Democratic state senators went to Albuquerque, New Mexico, out of the Rangers' jurisdiction. They remained in Albuquerque for 43 days. The Democratic representatives went to Ardmore, Oklahoma. Apparently, senators and representatives didn't even want to be in the same state. The representatives remained in Ardmore for a week. The Democratic senators spent the entirety of the 30-day session related to redistricting out of state. Forty-three days after the walkout began, State Senator John Whitmire returned to the chamber and a quorum was reached. I guess this is one defecting Democrat uh, from New Mexico. The state Senate approved the congressional redistricting plan. The state house approved the redistricting plan following the return of the chamber's Democrat. So that was 2003. You know, this happened also in Oregon, a legislative walkout in 2001. And in that year, it was Republicans uh, who were trying to pass a redistricting plan as a resolution rather than a bill. And Democrats were in the minority at that point, and they were the ones who walked out. Remember, this past spring, it was Republicans in Oregon who walked out. But back in 2001, 18 years ago, it was Democrats who walked out. And in 1924, it happened in Rhode Island where you had the Democratic minority in the Rhode Island State Senate refusing to vote on an annual appropriations bill unless Republicans agreed to pass a referendum allowing for a constitutional convention, and they walked out. So um, all of this is very interesting, and it couldn't happen in Michigan because we require only a simple majority and republicans have a 58 52 margin in the house and a 22 16 margin in the senate so unless there are some deaths or resignations that would change the composition of each chamber doesn't seem to me like democrats could walk out and make anything happen now they might have back in 1993 94 and they might after the next election, who knows? I'll be back in a minute because there's still more to this story. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We have returned with our brief history of legislative walkouts in various different states, never here in Michigan, at least not to the present time. What I've been talking about I think is interesting, but... If you've noticed, all the legislators who have walked out of their sessions in protest against what the majority was trying to cram down their throat, for whatever political purpose, they all of them, senators and representatives who walked out, remained in office. And they eventually returned to their state capitals and their legislative business even if they had been AWOL in other states beyond their state's jurisdiction for sometimes not just days, but weeks. Of course, if 
they actually resigned in protest, they would lose all their individual political power, at least for the time being, and they would lose their salaries as well, and maybe fringe benefits. But was there ever a time when state legislators actually felt so strongly about their political principles that they would actually resign from the legislature and terminate the entire session until the next election? And the answer is yes. And it happened. And it occurred in our neighboring state of Indiana where in 1871, yes, we're going back to the 19th century, something rather extraordinary happened. What was it? Well, it's hard to get an objective description because all the newspapers at the time, remember, we had no TV and no radio back in 1871. All the newspapers at the time were wholly owned subsidiaries of either the Democratic Party or the Republican Party. And everything these newspapers wrote, not just editorials, but news columns, were heavily biased in favor of one political party or the other. Justin Amash would have had a difficult time dealing with this. Now let's listen to a few of the descriptions of what happened in March of 1871, five years after the end of the Civil War. Let's go to the uh, Connersville Indiana Times, Connersville Times. Here's what they said. On Thursday last, 34 members of the Indiana House of Representatives resigned their offices. This was done to prevent the passage of an unconstitutional apportionment bill. And for that reason, their action will be justified by the people of the state. They would have been accessory to a violation of the Constitution if they had remained in their seats while the Democrats passed such a measure over their heads. They would, therefore, have been untrue to their oaths to support the Constitution if they had not made every effort in their power to prevent its violation. Now, let's go to the Toledo Blade, and this is another Republican-owned paper. What I just read, obviously, was written by a Republican-oriented or owned paper, the Connersville Times. And the Toledo Blade, I think, also falls in that category. But uh, the Toledo Blade at least said this in a somewhat objective assessment of what had happened. Quote, We still think it is a matter of regret that the Constitution of any state should require a two-third quorum for the transaction of business. But so long as it gives this advantage to a minority representation, it must be inferred that it is a power given to be used when particular exigencies seem to justify it. Certainly we think that in this instance, the Republicans of the Indiana legislature deserve thanks and not censure for the course they have pursued. Well, obviously, they're a Republican-oriented newspaper, so they would reach that conclusion. There were other articles at the same time from various Republican-owned or biased 
newspapers, the Noblesville Register in Indiana, the Union City Eagle, the Whitley County Commercial, uh, let me see, Logansport Journal, Porter County Vedette, uh, the Rochester Spy, the Monticello Herald, the Shelby Republican. Uh, These are all Republican-owned newspapers in Indiana back in 1871, the Newcastle Courier, the Brookville American, the Orange County Union. But that doesn't mean that there weren't Democratic papers who thought this was an outrage, that the so-called radical Republicans, and that's the way Democrats like to refer to the Republican Party at that time, there were Democratic papers who castigated the Republicans who resigned, the 34 of them who resigned, and not only stopped all legislation ad hoc for the time being, they actually dissolved the entire legislature by resigning. Uh, The Democratic papers who took umbrage at this were the Indianapolis Daily Sentinel, uh, the Muncie Democrat, the Louisville Ledger. Now, that was just across the Ohio River in Kentucky, but obviously its readership extended into southern Indiana. The Chicago Times, the Fort Wayne Sentinel, and the Bloomington Democrat. They all took the opposite point of view. And I guess the real question is, what is likely to cause legislators to walk out or resign? Well, uh, obviously, the subject of right to work recently has come up, cap and trade this spring in Oregon. Uh, But there have also been some examples. You saw the one in Texas that I just cited a few minutes ago. And obviously, this was true way back in 1871 in Indiana. Reapportionment, redistricting. Uh, is a big deal. And if one party thinks that the majority party at the time is trying to come up with a map that is going to give the shaft to the minority for maybe years to come in elections with gerrymandered maps, they could walk out. Now, one thing that really is ironic about Indiana was that just two years before, in 1869, and this was four years after the end of the Civil War, the shoe was on the other foot. And the Republicans were in the majority in 1869 in the Indiana Assembly. And the Democrats were in the minority. And the Republicans were trying to get ratification of the 15th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. Now, what was the 15th Amendment. And what is it still today? It was enfranchisement of what was called then, quote unquote, the Negro vote, unquote. In other words, giving African Americans unquestioned power and authority in the wake of the Civil War to vote in this country, the 15th Amendment. And the Republicans, remember, were the party that was founded to fight slavery. The Republicans were the party that included the abolitionists and the famous president of the Emancipation Proclamation, Abraham Lincoln. The Democrats at the time 
even in a northern state like Indiana, not a southern state, were, if not the pro-slavery party, they certainly were acquiescent to the expansion of slavery in the rest of the country prior to the Civil War. So the Democratic Party was actually trying to prevent the passage of the 15th Amendment and franchising the African-American population in this country, if you can believe that. So amazing what happened. Uh, The Democrats walked out in 1869. The Republicans passed it anyway. Uh, It was ratified, the 15th Amendment, and the rest is history. Uh, This has been an interesting little history lesson. We're going to be back in a minute with a completely different subject and another guest. Thank you. This is MTN, and you're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. Here's Bill. We have returned with our final segment, and we have a special guest here, Lauren Gibbons, ace reporter for MLive and its constituent newspapers across the state. Lauren Gibbons, welcome to The Political Insider. Thanks for having me. Now, I'm looking here at an article you wrote. um, It was just published, at least in the Flint Journal, over the past weekend. The headline is, Your car's GPS can use your location, but not your auto insurer. And there's a subtitle, Strictest in the Nation, New Law Bans Using Zip Code and Credit Score to Set Rates. And let me just mention before I ask you something, uh, this is the one really signal achievement of the 100th Michigan legislature so far in the first six months of 2019 is passage of auto insurance rate reform, uh, something that had been debated for a couple of decades with no success. Finally, it got through, was signed into law by Governor Whitmer, and uh, yet Uh, You know, I think there's some people saying, well, this could be tweaked, it can be improved, and there are bills being introduced to change things. But let me just ask you, in particular, in this article, uh, what are you saying? Can you explain that to our listeners? Sure. So, uh, as, as you said, this has been such a hot topic in Michigan for so long, but it's important to note This is a hot topic nationally as well. Uh, So many national groups are also watching this for the potential implications uh, around the country. And when I talked to a lot of national experts who've been following this issue, they basically said these non-driving factors, um, you know, many states don't have any non-driving factors that insurers can't take into account. Um, And the ones that do don't have quite as many as what was uh, proposed and eventually passed. Uh, in the compromise legislation reached in the legislature. And so some of those examples, um, you know, they, they don't want you to take gender into account. Um, they don't want you to take uh, territories. It was a big, a big one in the legislature, as well as marital status, home ownership, education level, occupation, and zip codes. So those were all some things that were included. And basically what uh, national experts on all ends of the spectrum are telling me is that most states don't do a blanket ban on all of these factors at the same time. Well, let me ask you, this is kind of curious, because going into the passage of this legislation, as you know, supposedly Michigan had the highest auto insurance rates in the country. 
And it would seem to me that non-driving factors were a factor in the fact, yes. in the fact that we had such high rates. But you're saying uh, these other states, uh, you know, allow non-driving factors, and yet they didn't have rates as high as Michigan. Why is that? You know, I think that's a that's a good point, and I think um, as many consumer advocates say that it's especially high in um, in areas where there's a lot of population. Um, in Detroit, especially in Michigan, is uh, I think the zip code factor is something that consumer advocates say is potentially negatively impacting those who live in cities, especially cities with a lot of poverty. Um, so, so I think that that's an interesting point. There's so many factors that go into how auto insurance is priced. Non-driving factors is only one small part of that, but it especially impacts uh, those groups, in, especially in those larger cities and, and areas like Detroit, where you've just seen exponentially higher rates than, for example, you know, the next town over. Yeah, I mean, we seem to forget, I think, that, you know, Detroit, even though it's slipped in population, has gone from nearly 2 million people 60 years ago down to fewer than 700,000. It's still something like, you know, the 23rd biggest city in the country, and it's over 80% African-American. And many states really don't have that large an African-American population, and if they do, it isn't packed into a fairly large city with such a high percentage. So maybe when you've got a Detroit or a Flint with 60% African-American population and a few other outstate Michigan cities with substantial African-American population, maybe that was what really drove up our rates to a great extent compared to a lot of other states. you think so? Um, it's possible, at least in the Detroit area, uh, that some of these non-driving factors uh, could have contributed to these higher rates. Um, it is It is definitely... Uh, something that Detroit residents have noticed. Uh, you know, you've seen so many Detroit lawmakers advocate so passionately about this issue because they experience it themselves. And it's important to note um, many of the Detroit Democrats, while some ultimately ended up voting for the final uh, package, there were some Detroit Democrats that thought non-driving factors should be taken even further, that more considerations should have gone into making sure that these factors don't impact how people, how much people pay on their car insurance. Yeah. What do you think about um, how this is likely to turn out? I mean, it's going to take some time, isn't it? A, a year or two until we really see whether there's a practical effect or impact of this legislation. Right. It's almost impossible to say at this point, you know, there's a lot of uh, speculation out there, uh, especially among the interest groups on both sides of the spectrum. You know, it's it's so hard to say until people's car insurance start changing, uh, we're not going to necessarily be able to know exactly how much someone's rate will drop or if it will at all. Yeah, one thing, obviously, that uh, many people contended made Michigan's rate so high was the fact that we had no cap on catastrophic uh, coverage in the case of a severe accident uh, where somebody was incapacitated and literally would spend millions in lifetime care if they didn't have help 
from the state insurance pool. And now that has been taken out of the bill as a mandate for every motorist. It's an option still. Uh, how do you think that's going to play out? And, and you know, I know there's some legislators who uh, resented that being taken out as a mandate from the law mm-hmm. that we had for the last 45 years. Uh, do you think that might get put back in or changed in some way, shape, or form? You know, it's uh, like like you said earlier, it is really hard to say exactly how things will turn out, but a lot of experts on all ends of this debate basically think that a lot of people are, you know, if they're given the option, they're going to try and get the cheapest car insurance possible, right? So the likelihood that less people will take that unlimited option is very high because people want lower rates, and if someone is presenting to them, if you do this, then you'll get lower rates, then it's likely that they'll go that route, right? Um, And, you know, there's also folks that, you know, will probably still want the unlimited you know, hearing some of those arguments from groups like CPAN uh, that, you know, if something were to happen, you might want that unlimited coverage. But, you know, it, it is so difficult to predict beyond it's likely that a lot of people will want their rates lowered after this legislation passed. You mentioned CPAN, and of course, that's a coalition of groups, including trial lawyers and people in the insurance industry and health care providers and they have been huddling, maybe that's <laughs> the correct word, uh, strategizing uh, whatever for the last six weeks since the legislation passed and was signed into law about do they do anything going forward to try and interfere with the implementation of this law? Do they uh, perhaps uh, go the petition route and try to get enough signatures on petitions to force a referendum on the law, which can be allowed in Michigan. Uh, We last had that back in 2012 on the emergency manager law. Uh, Or maybe they'll file suit against all or part of this. What do you hear? What do you think may happen? You know, as anything is possible, right, Uh, there's already um, on the other end, uh, there was already the threat of, going to the ballot to get some sort of reform in place. Um, and that was that was talked about and definitely a factor in some of the negotiations. But whether CPAN or other groups that really want this to say, go the, go the ballot initiative route, that's possible. It's unclear at this point. Right now, a lot of those groups are basically just trying to inform, uh, inform residents of Michigan their opinions on this matter. They think that it's not a good deal for the state and that they want to see more improvements and more changes. So whether they go the ballot route, whether they file suit, uh, that's a possibility as well. But, you know, at, at this point, a lot of their efforts, at least publicly, have been to say, we don't like this. Here's why. Informing the public generally. That was Lauren Gibbons. She is a reporter for MLive, which includes a whole bunch of newspapers in Michigan, the Flint Journal, Grand Rapids Press, Ann Arbor News, uh, Muskegon Chronicle, Bay City Times, Saginaw News. You can go on and on. It's been around a long time. She did a great job with this article. Thank you very much, Lauren Gibbons, for being on The Political Insider. Yeah, thanks for having me.